Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. Dan Hammond, how are you? And I think I know what the answer is. Loaded. You might be able to hear some of this in my voice, although I, th- I hear that I'm, I'm sounding a lot better. I've got the dreaded COVID at the moment, Pia. I have actually, the um, after many, many, I don't know how many of these little lateral flow tests I've done. You've got the two lines. I've got the two lines. I'm two, Dan Two Lines Hammond at the moment, positive for COVID. And I have to say, even though I think some of these earlier Omicron variants, people were drifting through them as if it was a cold, this has been a little bit grim. It, I know. <laughs> is, it, is it being like man flu on oh, steroids? It, it, exactly. Well, honestly, I have to say, it's sort of, to be honest, seeing the second line was great because I felt rubbish and I was being a bit whingy. But then, it's brilliant <laughs> because if you say I don't feel very well, people think man flu. You can just say I've got COVID. Oh, oh so yeah, I've that- actually got proper sympathy now. It's brilliant. I think I might just keep one of these and wave it about whenever I'm feeling a little bit sort of a little bit iffy i'll just <laughs> a say whingy. You know, a bit whingy you know, and i think it was you that came up with a staggering piece of uh, probably absolutely correct research that getting covid was the longer you lasted was dependent on how attractive you were so you've lasted an awful long time i have so i you- think this I'm, I'm by far the most attractive person in our company that's for sure in Squadify. <laughs> and i've out beautified pretty much everyone actually that i know so yeah frankly so and well most done of the congratulations thank you and anyone who knows me knows that the first thing they think when they think about me is god what a stunner i mean absolute heartthrob exactly i think people, <laughs> so this comes as no surprise to anyone but i'm gonna little, do a little segue because our guest today, one of these many lives, is actually to be a model, which, joking aside, is something that I'm unlikely to find a second career in, but he has. But that's not what he does most of the time. He's mostly a, uh, a lead nurse in an accident emergency unit here, very close nearby to me in Yorkshire. And he has a lot to say about how humans connect in his many worlds to get stuff done. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from him. Let's go and talk to Andy Bucock now. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today on We Not Me. It's great to see you. Great to see you guys. Fabulous. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Andy, get us kicked off. Just tell us a little about yourself. How did you end up? I think you've got an interesting story. So tell us a little bit briefly about how you ended up here. Well, I started life in Ilkley, little town, West Yorkshire, as you know it very well, as a butcher. Ended up married to a sweet young girl whose dad was involved in nursing, which is a profession I took up. I've been in the NHS for about 35 years as a nurse, A&E, coronary care, ICU, with a little bit in the middle where I did 10 years as paramedic. And amongst other things, that's what I do. I'm, I get a buzz at helping people. And I think as a nurse, you sort of actually your uh, role. You, that's the core. Oh, excellent. Well, we'll visit a few... Uh few of those topics where you help people along the way i suspect andy but it's brilliant to have you on the show so as you know we we torture our guests with first of all with a conversation starter card just to get to know a little bit about you so i'm going to pick a card at random and that card is well this is interesting so my worst job ever was <laughs> i think come from an age where if i didn't like a job i just used to like leave on a friday and go another job on the monday it was simple i got a job in the kitchen at a psychiatric hospital and I was mopping the corridor. No, I was going down the corridor, and there's a guy mopping the corridor, and the bloke had collapsed on the floor, and the guy just mopped round him. 
Harry Tom. It just did me in completely. I was, I was really panic-stricken. They obviously knew this guy. I think he'd done some kind of dying swan to get me some attention. But nobody was bothered. I'd never seen that before. Not surprising. That's an image that you'll never forget, I'm sure. Oh, I do remember I'd started my nursing. I was doing a student placement in A&E where I work now, and one of our regular customers had decided to lay himself on the floor outside the department. Again, there's a student nurse, not something I'd ever seen, and I went out and was quite concerned. And the senior sister just came up behind me and said, so-so, get up. And he did. <laughs> he ran off. <laughs> just did. I think you're going to have to get stretches and ambulances and all sorts. Of just <laughs> that's yeah. an early lesson, isn't it? Yeah, that's great, perfect. It's a picture of compassion, really. That that sort of sticks in your mind there. So, I mean, you got you know, Andy, you're right at the front line. You've had a long career, and I would imagine the last few years have been particularly intense. So, take us into your world. What's it like? current world is absolute madness. The pressure on A&E departments and the NHS in general is absolutely phenomenal. I'll give you an example. The, the department I work in, if you go back, say, a year, I'd be in charge on the Friday night shift. In the Saturday morning, I'd hand over to the day team and you'd hand over a dozen, maybe a dozen and a half patients with about an hour's wait. About a month ago, I handed over at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning 57 patients with a 10-hour wait. And we, we're a small district general hospital. We're not an inner city, inner city. So what's happening? We are a little bit dumbfounded, to say the least, ourselves. But currently, it's been all over the news over the last couple of days that the, all the ambulance services are all on a critical level. Uh, this happens with us. We have no capacity a, a great deal of the time, so ambulances back up outside the department with patients on board, which is fine because the patients are safe in the ambulances and getting any treatment they should need. But when you phone for an ambulance, there isn't one there because they're all stuck outside A&Es with patients on board. They're unable to decant, if you get my drift. You know, I've got a a friend who works for uh, a local ambulance service to an adjoining county to mine. And it was middle of the week, about six weeks ago. If you'd have phoned for an ambulance, and with every respect you needed an ambulance, there was only 186 people in front of you waiting for an ambulance, which gives you some idea of just how sort of rough it is at the minute. The system is, I've, well, we've never known anything like it at all. There's a large issue with people getting to see the GP face-to-face, -face, which in itself is an issue. But what's happening is patients are, once they've tried and better tried and tried again and then tried again the week after, they give up trying and they just come to A&E. And you can't blame them because they need seeing because they've missed. It's probably not an A&E problem. It's certainly not an accident and it's not an emergency. But it is in the, he's addressing, and it's their only option. The other side of it is we have this system now called 111, where you phone 111, and basically they tell you to go to A&E. There's also a massive recruitment issue with nursing at the moment, so we're thin on the ground, to say the least, and a lot of our staff are not newly qualified, but of minimal experience. 
somebody like myself, a lot of what I do on autopilot, it's like driving. I've seen it so many times because like 30 years worth. And I, not say struggle, but I'm, you're acutely aware constantly of what's going on around you. But you've seen it and you've done it and you know what's going to happen. Whereas if you've been in the profession maybe 18 months or two years, it's a real eye-opener. If you go back a, a, a good while, they say nursing was a vocation. You didn't actually need paying because you got that much job, job satisfaction out of it. Said that about teaching as well. I remember. <laughs> it's a there's an aspect to it. It's a buzz. It is. It's a ridiculous pace. It's often life and death situations, and it's as long as you're winning, it's great. It's like being in a race that you shouldn't win, but you are doing. And as long as you're in that position, it's good. It's when you start to, sometimes it's blatantly obvious that your best isn't good enough because you haven't got two sets of eyes, two sets of hands. And for myself, I take a step back, look at the situation, process what we need to do and get on it the best way as you can. Whereas the younger end, it, you can see it sort of quite physically upsets them. It's not the best place for them. And to combat that, we, you know, we try and maintain morale. You try and see a sort of funny nursing humour is something you, you don't want to go there if you're not a nurse. Honest to God, you. But the conversations we have, which make you laugh, it helps an awful lot. Things like the banter in our little world, we're quite I don't know, politically incorrect quite often. Things we say to each other, but we know it's in humour and in, in, in good taste amongst the people involved. Yeah. Other than trying, you wouldn't say, there's things you say to your colleagues that you wouldn't say to a patient. For sure. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> that is good. So in that example where you're handing over 8 a.m. on a Saturday, you, it, does the whole shift change then? So it, you working in with the same team through a shift and then you hand over to another team for that next shift. And then, and then they would hand over to me their shift on the following night. But if you can go into your department and start with a level playing field that's really, you know has got capacity, if it becomes messy, it's your mess. You you know what's going on. Much easier to deal with than inheriting in if you inherit somebody else's mess. You know, but they, we're there twelve and a half, thirteen hours per shift, and by the end of it, you've had enough. You've got to hold your hands up and say, somebody else can have a go and see if they can sort it out. And how does teamwork work in, a, in shift work? Because you must be coming on with a shift that you don't know or you don't know the people. So how does that work? Well, you get your nursing team. I quite often will be myself and probably five nurses because we have six areas that need covering. And every now and again, we get an extra nurse, which is brill because that gives us a little bit of ability. We split the team up into different areas we have a, a red side a blue side they're only called that just to differentiate what they are the red is of it might as well be called purple you know what i mean it's not not of any relevance it's nothing to do with liverpool football teams or no like that. not much. liverpool's fine and the other football team that plays in red's not <laughs> in a league some myself anyway and you've got your team you it's important that you know your team's capabilities capacities you've got to utilize the skills experience you've got for whichever areas need covering you know our high end is our resource i'm sure you know what a resource is small room with minimal beds and very sick patients we obviously need experienced staff at that end we also have minors which aren't they still need as much attention but they're not a how can i put it critical so you can afford to put your less experienced nurses that side and this is all dependent on whether you get the appropriate experienced staff 
to make up your team. It's important that you know your your your, your team's strengths and weaknesses, which I'm afraid is not always the case because through hospital nursing numbers, it's quite regularly we will have agency nurses with us who have capacity, knowledge, experience, but they don't know the department. They don't. They are able to deal with the patients one-on-one very well. But if you are in an emergency, will you go and get me something such and such or tell so-and-so? They won't have a clue who you're talking about, you know, because they don't know the area. So how, what other factors make teamwork work, Andy? I mean, how else can it sort of go well? What do you need for it? And what else can make it go a bit pear-shaped? To make things go well, as I say, as I'm, I'm, 99% 99% of the time, I'm the shift leader, the team leader, if you like. And as I said earlier, if you need to know your team's capabilities. You need team players that are willing to swap roles, swap positions, assist in different areas. To get the best out of somebody, you've got to keep them comfortable in the area they're working. It's great to be stretched as a nurse, you know, to learn new things. But when the brown stuff sit in the fan, you've got to know that whoever's doing whatever he's doing knows what he's doing and he's not frightened to death which i'm afraid is often the case you know a lot of people have confidence to stand up and say oh, look i'm really not i'm sort of out of my depth it's, it's not a good place to be especially with newly qualified staff because their confidence is wafer thin and if you were to put them in a position where confidence is broken or things go disastrously wrong which I have witnessed, it's, it can be devastating for said individual. Sounds really difficult. Where you, as the team leader, you're walking a knife edge, aren't you? Between you've got, you don't have the bandwidth to do everything yourself. You've got to delegate, let people do things, and yet you may not even know if they've got the capability of doing that in the moment. So that's they won't want to tell you that. You know, agency nurses, especially if they have limitations or not experienced certain aspects of what we do, it's something that. Perhaps they don't want to tell you, and you certainly don't want to find out when it's too late. Because in A&E, you never know what's coming through the door, ever, in what capacity. Some of our worst patients have walked in rather than come in by ambulance. There's no sort of structure to it at all. You know, it all goes off all the time. People think it's all about blood and guts and gore, which is some sometimes the case. But dealing with somebody who's lost a limb for instance is a piece of cake compared to dealing with the parents who've lost a child the psychological aspect the relatives of really sick people is where you're stretched you know your compassion and your standing and empathy towards these people is you know vital and it's an area that needs an experienced head the best people often for that role are people who aren't actually qualified, but you'll have what would used to be called a nursing auxiliary. They're now called healthcare assistants. And they might not be skilled to death in God knows what, but actually talking with compassion to a a person is something they've done for years because they've brought up kids and, you know, had deaths in the family and babies and God knows whatever else they're going to do. I have a pet hate of somebody actually saying, I know exactly how you feel, because I believe that nobody knows how anybody feels. You think you do, but you don't. And I'm really intrigued by the the, the meat in the sandwich in your career here about being a par- paramedic for 10 years. So you're out on the road, literally. How is that different? Because it's a different teamwork, I would have thought. 
you've got a number of stakeholders to work with as well, the police or the fire as well. Well, the difference being paramedic, initially it'll be you and your mate. So there's two of you instead of about 10, which makes life a little bit easier. And then when your mate's driving you to the hospital and you're in the back of the ambulance on your own, your team of one. And in all honesty, I find that the easiest way to play because you know exactly what needs doing, what's been done, what you can't do, what you can do, and what, you know, you've got a, you know every aspect of what's going on, which was quite often I needed help and got it. But it's, I think working on your own is, there's a lot to be said for it. You know what you're doing. You're not relying on anybody else. And, you, you know, you're under no illusion that anything's going to get done unless you've done it. But how, you know, quite a lot of those, when you see those, murder accidents, you've got multiple agencies coming together. How does that work? Like, where do you fit in then? Because you don't know anyone and you're just turning up at a pretty awful situation. When you really are sort of feeling your weight, help, when you're desperate for help and help comes, you're grateful for it to, of any form, should I say. And, you know, if somebody's proficient and qualified as a paramedic or as ambulance crew, you know, you can ask them, to do anything you need to do. The hardest part of that is, is if you're the first on scene, say a multi-fatal road traffic or where there's a lot of patients, you are seen as, you know, you're, you're commander, if you like. You're the one who's, who's supposedly controlling what's going on. But at the same time, you've got people trying to pull you left, right and centre because they're convinced that they're, whoever they're with needs seen first. And it's the same in A&E. If you get a really sick patient, it's very tempting as the most, not qualified really, but experienced nurse to get involved because it's important. But we've had up to 88, 90 patients at once in the department and you can't afford to spend too much time with any one because you take your eye off the ball, God knows and no one else is going to do that if you don't. No, I no. guess everyone else is down at the. Everybody's got the... eyes on their little bit of the team. Yeah, mm. and you've got to be elevated. Yeah, however tempting it is. Yeah, I'm sure that's hard. And what? Uh, and another one. I another area I think of is the very dark days of COVID. When I did my nurse training, and when I did my paramedic training, we were taught all about pandemics. But we were also told that there's, don't worry, because there'll never be one because there haven't been one for... <laughs> Since 1918 or something. <laughs> and with medical science being what it is, it's never going to happen. And then boom. It was quite a leveller really because it was something that none of us had dealt with at, la at that level before. And it initially, uh, the people thought we were really busy. Well, we were, but it was with a handful of sick covid patients because all the minor patients somehow stayed away you know if you looked in the waiting room very very quiet in the department it was usual chaos but it was the workload numbers wise wasn't a patch on what it is now but it was a real opportunity to learn something new i got a friend who's a medic and he ended up in the gulf war and i had said to him what was it like and he he said it was terrifying but it was also a privilege because for him to be able to use his skills on that level, he really sort of enjoyed it in a strange way. And I think COVID was the same. Up till COVID, I didn't know anybody who dealt with anything like that. And now obviously I do. But 
you know, I was there. We 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 did what we did, and we did it to the best of our abilities. I, you know, I'll never forget seeing some of the nurses with the imprint of a mask on the face for like hours after a shift. You know, we're not talking the little surgical paper band with like a, they're like a bloody gas mask, a plastic thing, and they just went. You just worked on and on. Andy, I just want to dive into one thing about your environment, which is fascinating to me. We've It's about this banterous sort of that nursing culture thing where you just say outrageous things. If anyone sort of, if anyone heard you talking amongst your team, it'd probably be absolutely, what? <laughs> and, and we, you know, we talk a lot on this show about psychological safety, how people feel safe in a team to be able to say, speak up and say, I, I don't under, don't know, or I don't agree or whatever. But at the same time, we've seen these teams like yours where, like in the military, for example, or in the firefighter that we talked to had the same thing where you think, wow, you say some things that in the corporate world, you just, well, you'd be fired for a start. But actually, it appears to be a higher level of performance even when you can do that or it's needed. What's your thinking on that? How do you balance this whole thing and make sure everyone feels okay, but at the same time, you don't lose that, you don't become that sort of careful culture that probably wouldn't help you i honestly don't know it's something that over the years it's something that sort of evolves in your personality if you like and also you if you've worked with your team members on the whole for a reasonable amount of time you sort of know their quirks and over the last weekend we had a, a guy came in who had paul had he had a stoma and i asked one of my colleagues who's a fabulous girl she really is but she's quite how can i put it Stomas are not my thing. And I asked, we asked her to go do it. Her face was an absolute, but yeah, it was something, nothing, I'm only changing his bag part up. But her face were a picture, absolutely. But that will be brought up every time anything comes in like that. They'll, you know, so she'll straight to her every time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. We have patients with, should we say, foreign bodies in certain crevices. You know, they become the star of the night. Yeah. <laughs> It's not quite like employee of the month. You have a slightly different... (laughs) Whoever deals with such a, you know, with with whatever's appeared or disappeared, uh, you know, there's always some sort of funny aspect to it, which is, you know, it's great. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's what we get along with. We have a laugh and hopefully keep everything on track and keep everybody happy. Nurses are a, a breed apart. It's a lifestyle more than a job it's the the workload's ridiculous it's it's beyond daft it really is you just keep going yeah you you probably need a different style to even survive i'm sure yeah absolutely yeah there's horrific things happen and then it's your tea break so you forget all what's happened and go and have a cup of tea or you finish your shifts and you're supposed to just sort of twitch off and go home and that's what we tend to look like but I'm I'm pretty convinced I've got post-traumatic stress disorder. You drip fed it over months and years and years. And, you know, some of my girls at work, they're only just out of the teens. And in all honesty, I don't think anybody of that age needs to take on the stuff that we take on and take it into your headspace because they should be out having a good time and enjoying their youth, partying and travelling and doing what they should do. Rather than, you know, on top of the, you know, the dramas and the traumas and the horrors of dealing with what we do, we also, you know, we get loads of abuse, physical assaults on staff. You know, these girls, nurses, men, whatever, they're all doing the best. 
uh, when a patient, when somebody's been waiting 10 hours to be seen, they're really wound up, their relatives are wound up. It's not something you want, you, if it were your kids, say, you would, it's not something you'd, you'd want them experiencing. And is there any support for the, for people around that, that trauma, you know? Uh, there is, yes, there is, and we're very aware of it now. If something horrible happens, it's all got to be dealt with, but hopefully there will be a debrief. When I joined the ambulance service, which was in 1996, we were a group of newly new ambulance trainees. I was what I call a direct entry paramedic at the time. I, I you know, had to do my training and carry on. And one on, on one of the introductionary lectures, we were told, oh, well, if you face anything drastic, which you will, and I did, it's gonna, you could quite, find it quite upsetting. And that, you know, there is counselling and support available. But wouldn't recommend you ask for it because we'll just think you're soft. Yeah, that's, that's so. <laughs> Give with one hand, take with the other. I'm really hoping we have moved on. It was a long time, you know, it was like best part of 30 years ago now, whatever it was. And there's an awful lot of camaraderie. We constantly have ambulance crews in and out of our department. And having worked on both sides, I know what it's like. And well, I personally try and make time, make sure they've had a drink, look after them. And, you know, they do the same with us. You know, we often, well, once or twice, to say the least, we've had unruly patients. And if there's me on duty with six girls under five foot and somebody starts kicking off, if there's a paramedic round to give me a hand, it makes a lot of difference. That's definitely a we not me moment, isn't it? You don't want to be on your own at that point, Andy. It's a great feeling having a a really effective and supportive team around you. And it's an, uh, an area that is vital. Indeed. And so, Andy, following you on social media, as I do, I think you live about three, possibly four lives. So I'm going to take you, taking you outside. (laughs) I'm I'm assuming you don't sleep at all, but, but I'm just going to take you outside this crazy world of the NHS into the other crazy worlds you inhabit. So you have a, Put your your persona of very inky dude. You're a musician. Talk to us about some of those things. You uh, well, I I do a fair bit of sort of uh, promotional work, shall we say? I do modelling, photo shoots for various brands. I'm working with some cracking brands at the minute. One's called Warpaint UK. They're brilliant, and it's I will mention them because they're so good. These are a couple of girls who, through horrendous situations of losing their family members with cancer including children, also suffering cancer themselves, have set up this company called Warpaint UK and they make clothes specifically for people who are suffering from chronic illness, as in children's hoodies or adult hoodies with a a zip on the arm and an inbuilt tourniquet, pockets for stomas or syringe drivers. There's no need to go to go to hospital for your checkup and have to disrobe and wear a hospital gown because everything's accessible through this tracksuit or hoodie or whatever you're wearing. And I've done a fair bit of promotional work for them. I'm do some more. And that's the link with what I do for a living. Uh, other ones, all sorts, local brands. Uh, I was booked to walk at the Tate Gallery in London, but that got COVIDed. It didn't happen. I work with York Fashion Week an awful lot. I had my own show there. Again, that got squashed by COVID, but just on the spring, summer at the beginning of the year, I think I did seven or eight catwalks and numerous photo shoots, and we're now setting up the one in October. Uh, It's a sharp contrast to my average daily life, work life, and it's great. I meet a lot of fabulous people, go to a lot of parties, drink a lot of champagne. 
And that's how I like it. <laughs> Sounds perfect. <laughs> it's nothing uh, wrong with that. It does sound very good. The Inky Dude comes from some some geezer said, Oh, he looks like a real that it's that guy it looks very that dude looks very inky or something. And it sort of stuck. But somebody referred to me as that coloured in nurse. <laughs> <laughs> the, the rest of them just haven't been coloured in yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to stand out. I do my best for all the patients as the best I can. And they, they don't all know what I'm called, my name. And that's what I've asked for that coloured in nurse, at work, which I thought was brilliant. That, that's perfect. It's very sweet. It's very sweet. And music, Andy, I think this as well, despite the fact you lost your hearing from too much music early in your life, I think. I particularly love the, the tattoo on the side of your head that says that. I've got mute signs above my ears. I was lucky enough to be 18 in 1977. It just works out how old I am. And my eyes were opened by the Sex Pistols, The Clash, and these amazing punk rock bands that appeared. And I absolutely loved it. I started learning to play guitar, play bass. I also started DJing. And then followed about four decades of listening to far too much music, far too loud. And it blew my hearing out the water. I've got a hearing system installed in my ears, which is fab. It's called the Lyric System. Uh, looked after by the hearing suite in Harrogate great place really good and yeah i'll do all right i'm still playing my bass and i'm still making too much noise and i'm probably still doing damage to me hearing even more but it's perfect and i've seen the daisy men in action which is wonderful and you look you sort of have another band that you have alongside you at a lot of these gigs it'd be great to talk about that because i think there's a real there's another example of how you've really connected with with other folks to get things yeah moving. The, these lads are called the ectics e-c-t-i-x brilliant a set of lads with some issues they're on various spectrums and they are cared for by a good friend of mine called alan and these lads set up a band and they perform with us on a very regular basis uh they support us we try to take them wherever we play we take them with us the best we can they are great to see lads with learning difficulties or whatever doing what they do like they do it is brilliant you know they can sing like you won't believe one of them's sort of a concert pianist his capability is incredible and you you've got to really sort of encourage these people because whatever you've got you have to make the best of it and they are just something else they do so well they've got an awful lot of gigs of their own right there's a song one of the lines is i don't belong here but to see yeah a lad singing i don't belong here and you can see looking at him that he thinks perhaps he doesn't belong here because he's in a room full of people who perhaps we would describe as sort of normal and he's not the same as them. But he's, you know, he's up there doing it and these people are watching him and he's got bigger bollocks than a lot of them. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you an interesting question here. So it's just one to think about. You've told us, in a, a, like, I feel like I've had a sort of a big film view of what it's like inside a hospital right now. It's like a sort of very beautiful illustration. What has drawn you to this life where you are giving 110% so many different aspects? How does it relate to working with people to get things done? Because you're doing some pretty amazing stuff. I don't seem to be able to remember quite how it felt when I was newly qualified or say you know not so experienced but over the years you you become aware of the good feeling you get from making a difference to people you know it's something as simple as 
some old boy wants to phone his daughter and he, we don't have a phone, I'll let him use my mobile, you know? Uh, and little silly stuff like that, you know, it makes a massive difference. And I, I like to make a difference to, you know, anybody that I can. It's, I, I seem to attract old people that fall over. I, every, you know, I live in the middle of Leeds and every time I go out, somebody falls over. You don't mop, <laughs> but you don't mop around them. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but the strange thing is, though, I, I, like example, two examples this week. One was an old lady getting off a train with a case. And I was about the fourth passenger waiting to get on. But the three people in front of me, not one of them wanted to help her with this case, get off the train. And I did. You know, I can't bear stuff like that. An old lad in Leeds, he'd obviously had a stroke, and I'm walking towards him, and I could tell he was going to fall because where I work, everybody falls. You know, that's what they do. But I knew he was going to fall. He didn't hurt himself, but he couldn't get up. And I went out to him up. But the amount of people that walked past him is incredible. You know, be kind. It don't cost anything. You know, be kind. Do good things. It's, you know, I don't know. I believe in karma a little bit. And treat others how you'd like to be treated, or you'd like your parents to be treated. It's not hard. Keep people happy. Well, it's. I don't know. I sleep better at night because I I try to make some try to. Yeah, well, it's not just me. Everybody who I work with, we do our best, and nurses. That's what we do. Well, you're the salt of the earth, and I think we have a lot to be grateful <laughs> for. Because, yes. and I think it's, I think it's important to recognise it in advance of falling over, which is probably what we're going to do now, and uh, get land ourselves in A and E. But I, you know, I think that's, I think that's really true. And I, I, it also, it dumbfounds me when people don't come to the help of somebody else, because that is the antithesis of a we not me moment. So I'll give you a, a, the reward. And this is something that happened to me. I was I was actually in Harvey Nichols in Leeds, and I was having a meeting with a fabulous designer called uh, Zlatter. She's great. And I, we're sat having a coffee. And I could see out the corner of my eye this guy approaching, and I think she saw him as well, and I'm thinking, who was this coming? Anyway, he came up behind me, tapped me on the shoulder, and he went, all right, lad. And I said, hello, you know who he was. And he said to the, the Zlatter, the designer, he said, oh, he's great. He looked after my lad this week. And then he just walked, you know, uh, stuff like that. And that's, um, that's the core of it. Actually, as humans, we want to connect to get stuff done. So, you know, a, a huge thank you to you, Andy. It's been heartwarming. I think you've brought us right back to what's really important with lots and lots of, lots of examples. And I love the humour as well. So... Thank you. My pleasure. Absolutely. There's so much there to talk about, isn't there, Pierre? But what he said there towards the end sort of summed it up, really. I like to help people. It's so simple, isn't it, that? I like to help people. And it just occurred to me that that sort of at the heart of someone in a team or in a working in a community, you know, someone who wants to have that, it's the we not me spirit, isn't it? If, if to have that, it just struck me as being a really simple statement that drives a lot of it's really impressive behaviours on Andy's part, I think. And he, he sort of painted quite a clear and stark picture, you know, that the, the mopping around an individual that's lying on the on the floor at the start, and then the helping of an individual, but again, others not stepping in there. You know, that that's a pretty bad rate if you've got three people that 
go past somebody or don't help to one person that does. And yeah, I love that. There's the mopping around people or actually helping them up. I think that's a big choice we have in our lives. I, my, the lovely Mrs. Hammond has a theory that certainly in the UK that the thing that English people fear the most is embarrassment. So just the fear of embarrassment stops people helping sometimes. I'm sure she's right. But either way, we've got to be, we've got to do better than this, haven't we? See someone with back, help them. I mean, get over it. <laughs> get over it. Yeah, exactly. Get some help and stop being embarrassed because that person actually needs help helping up. <laughs> I think that's sort of like, you know. Exactly. Get a grip. I think also I was like that Andy has that that compassion and that care and he faces some pretty awful scenarios. It must be hard, like you were saying, like you come off a shift and then how do you decompress? You carry scars on that. And however good your cup of tea is, it's going to be hard <laughs> to, to, to come down from that and to really sort of process some of that. And when you're in the service, like the NHS for years and years, that's really, that's difficult. And I think you can tell that he values humans genuinely yeah I, th that was a little bit of a phrase wasn't it horrific things happen then it's your tea break i thought it was sort of <laughs> quite pragmatic but say in reality the tea isn't going to solve it i think we probably a lot of people out there who have a build-up of, of trauma that they're, they're sort of tucking away and certainly sounds like it's being dealt with a little bit better now and you're not seen as soft if you go and ask for help around that which is obviously oh, gosh that was such a trade the 90s were just a pretty tough time we were soft or wrong or I mean, the embarrassment bit was that you didn't want to get it wrong in the 90s because it was tough so i just feel a little bit more um i feel happy that i think we're in a bit more enlightened times now but you're right we all need a bit of andy we do i think everyone should be more andy i think that's that's my overall summary so take it exactly wonderful wonderful to talk to him but that is it for this episode you can find show notes and resources at squadify.net just click on the we not me podcast link if you've enjoyed the show and i'm really sure you have please do share the love and recommend it to your friends also please do give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform you can also contribute to the show by leaving us a voice note with a question or a comment just find the link in the show notes we not me is produced by mark steadman Voragin fm thank you so much for listening it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me 